Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. But in a rock, paper, scissors game, calm beats anger. I may have to inject them three times, but I win every time. Hey, Solar Warriors, I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Well, we're in season three of Suncast in episode 101, and today it's all about negotiation with best-selling author Chris Voss, who wrote the number three book on communications and the number five book on negotiation in all of Amazon. It's one of the seven best books of all time on how to negotiate, and we even have a cameo from past guest Scott Muller. You can tell we're changing things up this season and stretching Suncast and what it's all about. So get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, Solar Warriors, you may recall that back in episode 83 in May, I featured one of my all-time favorite books. That book is titled Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It. And to my surprise, it garnered loads of feedback, including a retweet by the author, Chris Voss. So I reached out to him to thank him and also invited him to come on Suncast. And to my surprise, he accepted. Since so many of you are involved in some aspect of sales, and in particular, executive leadership, founding your companies, I'm really excited today to further unpack the details of Chris's book with the man himself. We'll try to extrapolate as best we can to how it's relevant to the solar industry, but know that this is wisdom you can apply in your everyday life, from buying a car to navigating that next argument with your husband. Hey, Chris, welcome to Suncast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on with you. It is our pleasure to have you on. So, Chris, let's get to the underlying philosophy that led to the way that you've crafted your follow-on, you know, your, your business now, your consulting. You spent a quarter century practically at the FBI negotiating with terrorists, most often with kidnap victims and negotiating with terrorists who had done kidnappings internationally. Could we talk about the first time that you realized that terrorist negotiation or kidnap negotiation directly applies to business? Yeah, well, you know, I started to suspect that really early on when I finally went to the training specifically to work a kidnapping negotiation. At the time, it was a critical incident negotiation team or the SINT team, if you will. Everybody, you know, everybody in the government loves their acronyms. The guy that was doing the instruction actually was a buddy of mine. Uh, he and I had been trained originally as negotiators together. And I grew up in an entrepreneurial environment. My father had his own business. So I always like to think of things in those terms. And this guy that was teaching us, because I thought I was going to get the secret handshake or what are the magic words, you know, hocus pocus, what, you know, what's the mystery? And he said, you know, every country you go into the war kidnappings, he said, you need to find out in advance. They're going to have an opening ask, you know, a ransom they're going to ask for. And there's always going to be a predictable percentage of that ass that they're going to look for. And then he said, and there's always going to be a duration of the expected amount of time the kidnapping is going to take. I remember saying to myself, we're talking about a commodities market here. I mean, they're, they're going to have their pricing and they're going to have their 
turnover on the commodity. I remember initially being horrified by it, but I thought this is a market price and this is an expected turnover of a commodity. And that was when, especially in the kidnapping, I began to realize that it was dealing with hard-nosed international kidnapping to separate it away from other kinds. Right. But it was definitely, it's a commodities exchange. It's a hard-nosed business. And, and the more I learned about it, I mean, they are in business. It's a business model. They got a division of labor and they look at it as a business. So yeah, it was when I first got trained to start working kidnapping. One thing that sticks out for me as well, that it's a key differentiation perhaps between terrorist negotiation, in particular with kidnapping and business, is the notion of the sole buyer. Could you unpack the whole idea of how a sole buyer benefits a kidnapper or in the kidnap negotiation and how that might slightly be different in the business world and maybe there's some similarities? Yeah, and you're always looking for the parallels. You know, we used to always challenge people, who's, who's got the leverage in a kidnapping, the kidnapper or the kidnap victim's family? And, you know, our instinctive reaction is, well, the kidnapper's got all the leverage. And, and, I, and I will say, wait a minute, I thought cash was king. I thought the person that had the money has the leverage, especially even, even if it's not a, a buyer's market, even if it's a seller's market, cash is king. Well, aren't the kidnap victim family? Isn't the family the one with the cash? And, you know, and who else are they going to sell the victim to? You know, you got, you got a buyer's market. You got, you got one buyer. If you're, if you're a seller, you're at a disadvantage. And what, what people don't realize in the business world, which we've really discovered since we've been out here, the procurement negotiator, the contracts negotiator, the supply chain negotiator is the exact profile of the international kidnapper. I mean, just down to a T. They react and think the same way. They're threatening. They're intimidating. They think they've got all the leverage and you think they do too. And salespeople across the board and business people across the board are scared to death of the procurement people. I mean, I've had CEOs freak out over procurement. Well, the crazy thing is that everybody forgets if procurement is talking to you, they've just become the sole buyer. Mm. Nobody in any company ever puts their procurement people in the mix unless they want you. Supply chain, contracts, procurement, they have made the commitment to you because their procurement is not wasting their time on deals they're not going to make. They have us an expected time frame, just like kidnappers do. The procurement negotiators get somebody behind the table on his side, tapping his toes with his arms crossed, he or she going like, when are you going to get us this product? You only got so much time to deliver this product. You can beat them up, but we need this product. So the crazy thing is, especially since the book came out, we're giving people so much more advice. Instead of being horrified when procurement it gets involved, you should be ecstatic because that means if you don't lose your nerve, you got the deal. I just got goosebumps because I can think of many examples right now that I'm negotiating where it feels like the clouds just parted. I've suspected that because I'm in discussions directly with procurement that it ought to be a good thing. I feel like a lot of us tend to diminish like, oh, we're in, uh, and I'm referring to the solar industries particularly, we're in a, a small subset of the energy market, right? We're still a little industry where perhaps people will waste time more. But the reality is we're getting a lot of professional buyers on the counterparty side, in particular when you're dealing as I am with folks at utilities who have been in this for a long time or folks at large scale, you know, multi-million dollar contracts with large uh, project developers. That's very encouraging. And I certainly want to unpack. There's a lot that you touched on there 
as we get through this, I want to return back to the idea that procurement is exactly as a prototype of the kidnapper will for sure drill into the notion of diffusing angry tones and things like that. One of the things that came to mind as you were going through the ideas, well, just setting the stage for a negotiation, you mentioned the process of slowing down a negotiation and how that actually gives you more options as the counterparty. How would you turn this around and reference the idea of slowing down and a delay that saves time is another reference from the book. Right. Yeah. You know, um, a more deliberate process saves time for, you know, for a couple of reasons. Number one, you got to tease out what could potentially be on the table. I mean, we could engage in an intellectual exercise where I could prove to you that there's always more on the table that you could see. I don't care if you're Heimdall from Asgard who sees everything. You know, you, you know, there's always more on the table. And I want to I tease that out early on. We can accelerate the process afterwards once we get a good feel for what's on the table. Yeah, you said that the point of negotiation is to find out how much money is on the table. That's actually the whole point. We're sitting around the table figuring out how much money is on the table. So as we're setting money that- Money opportunity also. Yeah, so as you're pre-qualifying, then what are some of the questions you might ask to discern how much money's on the table, pre-qualify, what are the things that we're actually negotiating for? We don't answer a lot of questions. We start getting people talking to us right away. Like early on in a conversation, we'll say to them, sounds like something's on your mind. I mean, the other side's got tons of stuff they want to tell you. They just want to know whether or not, first, whether or not you're going to listen. They actually care a lot less about whether or not they can trust you with the information than they do about whether or not you're actually going to pay attention. Because if you're going to pay attention, chances are they can probably trust you. But the first big issue is are you going to pay attention to anything they say? Are you utterly wasting that time? Like if you're in a conversation with somebody, they got something on their mind. I saw an article written by the Facebook's head of marketing probably about two and a half, three years ago. Said he was sick of being asked what's keeping you up at night and then having nobody listen to his answer. I mean, just sick of it. So much so that he automatically expected anybody to ask him, the open-ended question that everybody loves to ask. Mr. CEO, what keeps you up at night? What's the biggest challenge you face? What's the biggest problem you're trying to solve? You know, everybody knows ask great questions, and I'm shocked at the number of people that don't actually listen to the answers. So that's one of the reasons why we, we usually don't ask. We don't pull information by asking questions. We pull information with the use of labels because I'm going to get a much more unguarded stream of consciousness as a result of a label that I'm going to get from a question. I want to understand labeling because I feel like it's one of those that you do a great job in the book of explaining it. And I still come away not knowing how to directly apply it in each scenario. Would you just explain labeling? And then I have a follow up on one specific scenario. Sure. Labeling. And it's also you got to make sure you get it right. The simplicity of the structure most people miss. And I will say, it sounds like there's something on your mind. That's a label. I have intentionally avoided the use of the word I. What an awful lot of people in accounting profession want to say is, oh, yeah, I know that. I know that from counseling. I say, what I'm hearing is the use of the word I is a pattern interrupt. It's a self-centering distractor. That doesn't mean it's wrong. That just means it's out of context in this instance. Like the use of the word I is appropriate when I want to say, look, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I use the word I twice there to say no. I use it first to say I'm sorry because in the instant that your brain reacts faster than my words, you've automatically, in the instance that my brain reacts faster than my words, you've automatically initially said to yourself, what's he sorry about? You put up a little bit of a defense. I've warned you that there may be some bad news coming. 
which also gets to the point of, is I'm sorry a bad phrase? No, it's not a bad phrase. It depends upon when you use it. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to want to use it as a warning. And then, boom, I'm going to hit you with the bad news. I have a tactical example. I have a client who just yesterday sent me a reframing of the pricing structure, and he gave us a significant haircut, almost $200,000. So knowing that we're not going to take the haircut and that he also has to do the deal with us, I should, in a phone call, say, I'm sorry, and then follow that with, that just doesn't work for us. Uh-huh. With the late night DJ voice. Yeah, if you're going to talk to him. I'm going to talk to him because I, before I send him the email, I want to have the courtesy of, say, of him not seeing the email as my first response. There's a number of reasons for saying it just like that. All great negotiators come to at least one way of gently saying no. We've seen this across the planet. Now, we teach four ways to say no. The reason for that is, you know, my Harvard brothers and sisters are going to want you to say, well, let's go to outside criteria. And let's agree on an outside criteria that we both can agree on. And then we'll be bound by that outside criteria. Now, that intellectually sounds wonderful. The first problem is you're never going to agree on the outside criteria. Second problem is, what if the outside criteria is good, but it hurts you? You still can't do it. Let's say there's a fair price, but you still can't do that deal at that fair price. Are you supposed to do that deal? So that just doesn't work for me. That just doesn't work for us. Immediately gets you away from the outside criteria problems. You do not want to be trapped by outside criteria. Your procurement guy is going to try and trap you with outside criteria. Just doesn't work for us. He's not going to come back and say, damn, (laughs) somebody's not getting a message. (laughs) You know, the the procurement guy is not going to come back to you and say, oh, yes, it does. You know, what he's probably going to try to lure you into, he's going to say, you know, we want a detailed breakdown of all your costs, all your costs and expenses. You know what our answer is? I'm not doing that. I'm saying, I'm sorry, it just doesn't work for us. That's one of the procurement guys' great ways to just hammer the heck out of you. It's a procurement guy, supply chain guy that's like, in the interest of a great relationship and in the interest of a long-term deal, please give us a detailed breakdown of your costs. So labeling are subtle questions that allow you to control the conversation in a way that puts it back into your counterparty's court to address a concern. Yeah, and, and, let, and let's, let's draw a distinction between control and upper hand because we don't try to control, we try to maintain an upper hand. And in many cases, we maintain the upper hand just because, you know, we refuse to be put in a position where, where we feel like we have to say yes. That's completely psychological. If you can't make me say yes... And in reality, we can't. I mean, come on. We live in a first world. We're going to survive not getting this deal. We're going to think it's going to be the end of the world. But, you know, not that many of us get up in the morning with the legitimate concern of whether or not we're going to die that day. And, you know, you, you think you got problems, you know, go visit my friends in Baghdad where they're actually worried about whether or not they're going to see the sunset. So, you know, what are our first world problems? They can't make us say yes. Now, we, you know, we don't, we don't hide information from other people because you can't make us say yes. But this open kimono process is a time suck. And time is money. You want me to give you all an open kimono. How am I going to show give you the open kimono? That's going to take a massive amount of my time. Mm-hmm. And my time could be spent doing other deals. Yeah. So you're now driving my costs in an insane way. And if you want to drive my costs in an insane way, I'm not sure I want you for a partner anyway. 
is the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. Do I want to be married to you for years while you do nothing but slaughter my profit margins? I don't know that I do. I mean, almost all of us who've sold into the procurement office get into what we might consider hostile environments, right? And start dealing with threats. When I come back to this guy and say, that's not going to work for us, not he, but his boss, who's famous for this, is likely to threaten that I'm not going to be in the deal. He's likely to yell. I'd love to hear how you talk oh, to people. Oh, that's awesome are, stuff. Yeah, I'd love to hear how you talk to people who are, who are making threats and yelling and what that signals to you about the buying process. Well, I understand why, they, really, why are they making threats? They're making threats because they feel pressure. They're making threats because they're scared of losing a deal. You know, our counteroffer is empathy, not substantive counteroffers. You know, our tactical empathy. Somebody starts making, if somebody starts making threats to me, one of two things happen. They're either afraid they're not going to get the deal or they're used to pushing people around and getting what they want. And I'm going to say, look, sounds like you're under a lot of pressure here. Is that labeling? Yeah. Okay. So sounds like you're under a lot of pressure here is labeling. Yeah. Okay. Now, you know, you, you, can, you can take your choice. We, we got a, another long-term customer. He was born with the late night FM DJ. Uh, <laughs> He's an analytical guy. And an analyst voice is really close to late night FM DJ to begin with. So he's the CEO of a, a company in, in a hospital pharmaceutical space. And his company is at the bottom of the pile. And he's got to get acquainted meeting with the biggest dog, the biggest player in the entire market. And he thinks it's a get acquainted meeting and it's a dinner. And instead, this guy's going to be Marlon Brando from The Godfather and say, either your signature is going to be on this contract or your brains are going to be on this contract. And this guy literally says to him, look, I just want you to know if you guys don't sign this deal, there's going to be long-term negative consequences. You might have actually said it a lot harsher than that. And our client, our friend said, just like this, he said, sounds like you're threatening me. And, uh, you know, the gruff attack and say, no, 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 I would never threaten you. But I just want you to know, you know, you guys don't make You guys don't sign this deal. I mean, it's not going to be good for you. And so he did it again. He said, sounds like you're going to make bad things happen to us. <laughs> now, notice he's using a late night FM DJ voice. But he's not doing it also at the accusatory way with the end. The inflection at the end is critical. Questioning. He's quite genuinely questioning as if he's confused. Yeah. He's curious. He's worried. Because you could say, sounds like you're threatening us. You could say, sounds like you're threatening us. You know, the second one is like, bring it on, which okay. is going to cause more of a fight. But the first one, genuine curiosity and innocence. And so he labeled this guy four times. The attacker backed off a little bit every time mm -hmm. until in less than 60 seconds, the whole thing was off the table. They had a cordial conversation. Now, my buddy, who's a brand new CEO, goes to this meeting with the secretary, who's been the CEO secretary for years, and has watched CEO after CEO get the dirt kicked out of him by this bully mm -hmm. and had never seen anybody back this guy off that fast and that gently ever before and made everything go away. Mm -hmm. And all he did was with a series of four labels, late night FM DJ, innocent at the end, and the guy went away. And so you're probably going to have to hit him with a couple of different labels. You know, the, the key is you're letting them punch themselves out. And also the late night FM DJ voice creates a neural synaptic response it hits the mirror neurons on the other side, 
And that's why the anger goes out of them and it's an involuntary response. Now, that's the default voice of FBI hostage negotiators. And that's why we don't get yelled at as much by terrorists as you get yelled at by procurement. (laughs) Is that because you start in the negotiation with that slower, more intentional and highly intentional about your inflection as well voice? Yeah. And we never let up. We we never let up because each and every time, you know, I'm injecting calm. I'm taking a syringe and I'm punching it right into their prefrontal cortex and I'm injecting calm. And maybe it takes more than one injector, but in a rock, paper, scissors game, calm beats anger. I may have to inject them three times, but I win every time. I know you're listening to this episode because you're tired of doing things the old way and looking for a new approach. And that is precisely why my friends at CPS America, AKA Chint Power Systems, have agreed to help make this fresh content possible for you. See, they believe in the power of change and the importance of trying something before others catch on. They are the U.S. market share leader of three-phase string inverters, pioneering that approach since before it was cool. With over two gigawatts shipped in America, Chint's feature-rich, high-performance inverters and its nimble service team are ahead of the pack, just like you. If you'd like to find out what CPS can do for your CNI and utility business, reach out to me for an intro, nico at mysuncast.com. Or you can reach out to them directly and just let them know you heard it here on Suncast. A couple things come to mind for me in one of the other interviews I, uh, I heard with you. You talk about identifying deal killers, and we're not talking about the actual products, but the people. Folks that you don't know are in the deal. You don't know that they're not favorable to the deal. I'd love to know how you train your clients to identify, position and neutralize deal killers in the form of people. Well, and again, we're going to get back to calibrated questions up front. We're going to get into a lot of, you know, who's affected here? You know, who's going to be involved in the implementation? How do the people that are implementing feel about this? The critical issue on these questions is not that the other side answers, is that you ask them multiple times because the second, third, even fourth time you ask a question, your point of contact is going to say to themselves, I should check. I should make sure that every answer I've given is accurate. I need to go back to my team because I don't want to be embarrassed. And that's the interaction you're trying to drive. You're trying to drive conversations away from the table. Yeah. I hear two things happening there as well. One, you're slowing down the negotiation. And two, you just inject the idea of calibrated questions, which I love. I want to make sure that the audience understands what a calibrated question is. So maybe you could give a few examples and why repetition you just mentioned is important for calibrated questions as a context of negotiation. All right. So we're calibrating our questions for effect. Every question is going to have an effect. If you don't know the effect, then you're shooting off a gun. You don't know what you're shooting at. The versions of the open-ended questions or as uh, my former colleague, Jim Camp, now deceased, brilliant guy, wrote Star With No, he called them interrogative. So the reporter's questions, who, what, when, where, how, and why. Now, the what's and the how's are the most palatable to the other side. They make them feel in control. People love to tell you how to do something. People love to tell you what to do. Of course, you got to listen to the answers and demonstrate that you've got the gist of the answers. But these what and how questions are the softest ones. So we will calibrate a what or a how question to get them thinking about their team behind the table. And then we'll, like, if I say, 
you know, how the people that are involved in this going to implement? Boom, my point of contact immediately pictures those people in his mind. He or she immediately pictures implementation. Now, the repetition of that will cause them to go like, you know, I'm not 100% sure that's what that's going to look like. They're going to get concerned that they will be embarrassed by being wrong. And that's when they'll go back to the other side and start asking questions. I see. And is the repetition something that they're sequential or you just keep coming back to it through the dialogue? I will come back to it through the dialogue. You know, I will, I will, and through, through multiple interactions. We really discovered this in a kidnapping. Um, you know, there's a salesperson's phrase called getting single threaded. When your point of contact ends up getting fired because they didn't realize that your point of contact was just there. Your point of contact didn't even know that they, they had competing interests working on the deal internally. This happens to a lot of people. This is why this is, in my opinion, a number one of the reasons why 50% of deals never get signed deals never get implemented. Because they're competing competing deals inside the company that your company is not telling who you're dealing with about. So this also uh, gets you out of the single threaded problem. We had a kidnapping internationally where we were single threaded. The bad guys had multiple buyers, and, and as odd as that sounds. And they were playing us off against the other. And when one of the buyers fell through, the entire deal fell through. So being worried about that, we go into the next kidnapping, uh, changing our proof of life strategy into specifically how questions. Yeah. I, now I understand the proof of life, actually, because proof of life with, with regard to kidnapping is direct and obvious. I perceive that you're probably referring to the, to the kidnapping in the Philippines. That was where we got single threaded. That was right. the Barnum I'll, case. Yeah, the Burnham case. That was... There's a lot of learning. And we followed that right on shortly thereafter, um, uh, kidnapping in Ecuador with, uh, with Pepe. And uh, we never got proof of life. But, but we always asked, how do we know Pepe's alive? How do we know the deal? How do we know the deal is alive? That's, mm -hmm. that's your question in business. How do I know this deal is alive? How do we know Pepe's alive? And these are the, the calibrated questions that we reference in the book. Right. It's the how questions that's designed to trigger thought and interaction. We found out afterwards that the kidnappers, the kidnappers point of contact kept going back to the jungle, having extensive conversations with his colleagues about whether or not they were going to bring the hostage into town and put them on the phone. We know that never happened before. Typically, they send a kidnapper negotiator out to make the deal. He engages in the negotiation until he thinks he's got a deal. Then he goes back to the kidnappers and they decide whether or not they're going to do that deal. But this time we hacked the process. Our guys were in touch with each other behind a table the entire time. That ended up creating other opportunities for us that led ultimately to our hostage escape. What a, what a story. The night I got the call that Pepe had escaped was a good night. Oh, no doubt. There's so many good stories through the book as well. I love how you weave the specific stories to, to tie to the techniques used, etc. Another Suncast tribe member and, and friend, he wrote in because he just this last week, took me up on reading the book. And he said it's dog-eared. Not only that, he said it's recommended reading now for all of his employees. He wrote in this morning and he's like, please, if you can, ask Chris. So while we're on calibrated questions, I'm going to jump into this piece because a good friend of ours, uh, Paul Grana, he started a company called Helioscope, well-known in the solar industry. They famously have never hired salespeople. They only have inside sales. So it's all inbound. They're generally waiting for customers. It's open conversations. They're answering questions rather than asking questions. Seems like they have a lot of volume, kind of shallow interactions versus whale hunting for, for big clients. So he asked, what would a calibrated question look like, perhaps a how question, in a customer support interaction for a company 
like Paul's. A high question and um, as much tonality as the construction of the question. There's always two issues. There's, is the question asked and is it asked like you really want to know? It would be, look, how do we fit with you guys? Now, that's a much, that's gen, where you gen, genuine curiosity in there. And you could say, how do we fit with you guys? That tone implies there is a fit and you're a bozo if you don't see it. <laughs> and it's going to create defensiveness. And that defensiveness is going to interfere with your answer. So right up, tonalities is like, do not undersell the magic of tonality. If there is fairy dust that you sprinkle on your counterpart with your tone of voice. For the longest time, I always wondered how the Wolf of Wall Street was successful, Jordan Belfort. You know, and the real life Jordan Belfort is not Leonardo DiCaprio. Leonardo DiCaprio is this likable, charming, fun, happy-go-lucky guy that everybody likes. You know, go out and see some actual video of interviews of the real Jordan Belfort. You do not get that same feeling. But how did the wolf get away with all that? The wolf still owes, the real-life Jordan Belfort still owes $100 million in restitution, which has got to be tip of the iceberg of, of what he stole. All right, but he did master tonality. You know, I scoured his book, The Way of the Wolf, because it is all yes focused. And no matter what you say, his answer is going to be the same classic salesperson approach that CEOs are sick of that where the salesman asks questions, but then the answer is my widget, no matter what your answer is. But he did show me some interesting things on tonality that I was like, that's it. He did everything else wrong, but he got tonality right. And he got away with stealing a hundred million dollars. Imagine what you could do if your mission is for good and not evil, and you get your tonality right, because the opportunity is there. So your tonality on those questions, those inbound, they're really critical. Yeah. You got to be genuinely curious, and then you're going to get a lot better answers. You know, you mentioned about how Jordan Belfort, he led in with all yes questions. One of the contrarian views from Black Swan and your negotiation style in particular is getting the counterparty to start with no, finding a way to get them to say no or think no. You gave a great example of how you got Jack Welch to give you an appointment or to come speak at your class. But the no, as your book leads in from, from chapter to chapter, leads into the idea of that's right versus you're right and the distinguishment there. But I'd like to start with the, the contrary popular opinion. What would you say are some good examples of what I call kind of trap questions to know, but how to get your counterparty into a position of saying to themselves no and why that's important? Well, people feel safe and protected when they say no. So if they feel safe and protected when they say no, that's why no becomes an automatic response in a, in a lot of cases. So, but you want to feel what happens when they feel safe and protected? They think things through. They think forward. They begin to think through implementation. Their head clears. When I asked Jack Welch, is it a ridiculous idea for you to come speak in my class at USC? He went dead silent for, for it seemed like an eternity. And then he laid out all the implementation. He said, here's my personal assistant. This is how we get in touch with her. This is her Twitter account. I will call and tell her you're calling, what it's about. I think we're going to be in Los Angeles in the fall. If we are, we'll come and speak to your class. Think of how many things he thought through. He thought through all the implementation issues, having said no. He felt protected. It triggered a whole bunch of thinking. And then he said, all right, if it's going to happen, here's what's going to have to happen, which would have been my next question. You know, how do I, who do I talk to? How do I get in touch with them? 
you know, how will you talk to him first? Do I talk to him first? Who initiates this? You know, that was, that was uh, a calibrated nose worth every bit of five yeses. It's a fabulous short circuit. Yeah, it, it hacks the system on a regular basis. You know, instead of saying, do you agree? We say, do you disagree? And people say, no, I don't disagree. But if it's going to happen, this is what I'm going to need. Boom, 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 boom. I mean, it, it launches you so much farther forward because you're not trying to trap them with a commitment. You're not, you know, the yes momentum nonsense, they call it tie downs. Well, tie downs is taking away somebody's autonomy and people will die to preserve their autonomy. That's not good for long-term relationship. So we get, you know, triggering and intentionally triggering no is just phenomenal in terms of implementation. One of the things that came to mind for me as I was thinking through the implementation of this that has worked for me is the idea that's a no trigger of, do you want me to fail? Can you talk about that within the context of procurement in particular? Yeah, you know, it's crazy. I love questions that we can, you could use with your boss. We have coached people to say to their bosses, do you want me to fail? I mean, it's insane what people will comfortably say no to. Insane. It, saying no makes people feel powerful, protected, in control. It creates, it makes them high and strong. You know, they feel like they're helping you. They feel like they're rescuing you. They feel like you just put a great big giant red S on their, on their chest. They're Superman, they're Supergirl, Superwoman. And then they will begin to proceed to rescue you and save you and protect mm. you with their follow-on answers. So do you want me to fail? It's a great question. We imagine the other person's going to burst into flames and scream at us. And the reaction from our using this over and over again is like, no. No, I don't want you to fail. This right. is what we got to do. This is how yeah. we got to fix this. Yeah. It's a great, you mentioned as well uh, in, in the separate conversations that it's great for salary negotiation. Probably I imagine it's great, great way to couch some, uh, some counter argument in an interview. I think that these all are in particular getting them to say no, to disarm them, to empower them, make them feel safe is core to your empathic negotiation method. Along with that empathy, one of the things that you really focus on that I think is critical is the difference between that's right and you're right. Can we unpack that? Sure. Well, you're, if somebody's saying you're right to you, you've been making an argument, they're sick of you, and they want you to shut up and go away. There is no better way to get somebody to shut up and simultaneously preserve the relationship than to look them in the eye and say, you're right. People get happy and they shut up. Now, that's right is what people say to us. When we've implemented Covey's advice of seek first, understand, then be understood. The real advice is show understanding first. Show right. it. Don't say, mm -hmm. I understand. It doesn't show anything. Show understanding and, and especially the negativity about yourself. I mean, uh -huh. we love to show understanding with people we disagree with. I mean, half our political arguments would go away between the Democrats and the Republicans if either side would show the least bit of understanding. Understanding is not agreement. It is not agreement. I don't know. I could say that 80 billion times. Understanding is not agreement. And I will disarm you when I show that you've understood. And I will get my way a third of the time without giving in an inch if I show you that you've understood. I will get a third of my deals by only by showing understanding, by getting you to say that's right. Because that's what you say when you feel completely understood. That's the trigger point that Covey was looking for us to get. When the other person says, that's right, they feel completely understood. And I will make a third of my deals without lifting another finger, if I can get that phrase. With that, I'd like to take a quick moment and ask Scott 
to come back on the scene here. Scott, you wanted to ask about training and preparation as we wind up our conversation with Chris. Go for it. I'm just curious, like, how do you train? How does one train this? Like, not just practice it in real life. I mean, I've used all these tools, like, to negotiate buying a car recently, try to use them almost every day. But how do you practice? How do you recommend practicing training, really, like, training to become an expert in all of this stuff? Yeah, low stakes practice for high stakes results. I mean, just just make a couple of automatic responses. Sounds like there's something on your mind. Say that to everybody that says to you, have you got a few minutes to talk? Every time. Sounds like there's something on your mind. That'll get you great practice at that particular label. Put it on a three by five card, put it by your office phone. You know, pick out your low stakes conversations and pick out triggers that you want to practice with. If you want to practice mirrors, just make a day mirror day. The only thing you're going to do is you're going to mirror everybody you talk to. And you're actually going to have a great day. People will tell you stuff you never expected to hear. But, you know, pick a skill, pick a part of the day or pick a day that that's going to be focused on that skill. Um, Lunchtime. Only thing I'm going to do is paraphrase what people say to me. Feed it back to them. You pick yourself out some low stakes practice to get your repetitions in, get yourself into orbit, and then, you, then you're then you moving really close to unconscious competence by picking out your strategic times to practice in low-stakes conversations. That is fantastic advice. And I'd like to follow it up with something that I do, in fact, always ask uh, as I'm rounding out our interviews. Within the context of training yourself, getting better, early in your FBI career, I know that you were given different types of books to read, notably uh, Cialdini's Influence. I'm curious if you were to give a curriculum to the Suncast Solar Warriors, what two or three books might it include that would help them become better negotiators, perhaps better salespeople, and certainly better humans? All right. So first of all, I want everybody to sign up for my newsletter. You know, The Edge comes out once a week, Tuesday mornings. It's a very short, digestible article. You know, some newsletters you get from people, there's so many topics there. I mean, just deciding what you want to read, you have to take a nap afterwards. It's exhausting. You know, you got, you got one thing to look at. It's short and sweet. It's a great way. It's a, a morning thing. We get them to people in the morning where their brain is still fresh and open. That'll help you get better because we're giving you all sorts of instances and interactions. I mean, I, I wrote one article called How to Negotiate with Somebody More Powerful You. And somebody said, I, yeah, but I need an article about how to negotiate when I don't have any leverage. Well, that's the same thing, but you're just looking at it two different ways. So we're going to tee it up in different ways every week so it hits your brain. It gets you, gets you thinking. I mean, just subscribe to The Edge. Send the text FBI Empathy, all one word. Don't let your spell check autocorrect it. Send FBI Empathy, all one word, and send that text to the number 22828. And the number again is 22828. And The Edge is a free newsletter. It's a good price. My old colleague from the FBI used to like to say, if it's free, I'll take three. And people love the edge as far as staying sharp. It's a great way to stay sharp. Now, the other books that I really like, Eric Barker's book, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, is about success. If Eric's book would have come out when I was still teaching in the MBA program at USC and at Georgetown, I would have assigned that book. That is a phenomenal book. Eric is a good writer. He writes from a regular guy's perspective, and he does a great job telling you about success, what's good advice, and what's not the good advice. And he's a regular guy, and he just wants to know. So that's a phenomenal book. I love the book, The Rise of Superman. It really uh, breaks down human performance. 
the psychology of flow and how you can get better as a human being and tap into potential that has caused X Games athletes to do things that are far beyond their physical capability. And why can they do them beyond their physical capabilities? Because their focus is increased. They've figured out a way to hack the system. Their mental endurance and their pattern recognition has shot through the roof. And that's what everybody in business is trying to do. It's a, it's a, it's a great discussion. Another book that I've read recently that I really like is called The Culture Code. It is by Daniel Coyle. Crazy book about how to put culture into your company and turn the whole place around. I mean, there's a lot of lip service that's paid to culture. They say culture, culture eats strategy for breakfast. All right, fine. What should that culture be? How do I do it? Coil breaks it down in a great way, and that book is phenomenal to read. Well, it sounds like uh, I've got a lot of reading to do. My brain is throbbing with all of uh, the application I'm thinking about in this conversation, and I am truly, truly grateful. I feel like we've gotten to sit in front of a sensei and really learn from a master today. I am truly, truly grateful for your time, and I do speak on behalf of the Solar Warriors and the Suncast Tribe that this is a great addition to our podcast. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Woo, that was unbelievable. So much good information there, all about how to negotiate as though your life is depending on it. Solar Warrior, thanks for sticking around all the way to the end with me. If you still can't get enough, head over to mysuncast.com where in the show notes, I have a lot of links to other articles and stuff that I've read and just unpacking some more about this episode. I hope that you're enjoying the new and much, much shorter intro to the show along with the new music. I've been playing around with a lot of different styles, so let me know if you like that one. And I'm going to take probably the next 10 to 12 episodes and really figure out how I want that intro and this outro, for that matter, to sound. I'd love your feedback, not just about the intro, but about the episode. So would you please consider, number one, leaving a rating and a review over on iTunes? That really means the world to us. And also, would you give us a shout out on Twitter at Nico Mayo, N-I-C-O-M-E-O, or look me up on LinkedIn. Since you're still here, how about a little snippet from the next episode, eh? If they have to pick and choose to develop these, you know, call it five assets versus the 10 that they're working on, they might need to take on additional capital and additional resources. Well, that was a clip from the upcoming Tactical Tuesday with Mike De La Gala, all about early stage project development. You won't want to miss that one. And hey, while I still have your attention, I'd love to say thank you once again. The fact that you still are here means that you're enjoying this work, and I thank you for that. If that's true, would you please consider also take a look at the Suncast Energy Tribe on the member page. To all my current tribe members, I wish you much love and great success, and please stay tuned to our private channels for some updates coming your way very soon. See, every week folks are joining as new members of our tribe. You too can join them. Just go to mysuncast.com forward slash member to see what we're talking about. I look forward to formally welcoming you into the tribe as well, my friend. And thanks again for showing up. It is half the battle.